DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, the end of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenians flee as the separatist region is absorbed into Azerbaijan. There was no fuel, there was no food, no medical supplies. So this was a people who had already been almost broken. And now the humanitarian situation on the ground, it, it's dire. Also on Inside Europe, Stefanos Kasalakis, who is the new leader of Greece's Syriza party and why does it matter? Also, chill out, the race is on to find Montenegro's laziest citizen, but stay awake because the International Day of Coffee approaches. Those continental contrasts coming up for you right here on Inside Europe. Nagorno-Karabakh is soon to be no more. This Thursday, the region's separatist government announced that it will dissolve itself and the unrecognised republic will cease to exist by the end of the year. The announcement came amidst a mass exodus following last week's attack by Azerbaijan. In order to help me make sense of all that is happening, I reached out to Robin Fabro, editor-in-chief of OC Media, an independent online news platform covering the North and South Caucasus region. We spoke on Wednesday, when the dissolution of Nagorno-Karabakh seemed inevitable, although it had at that point not yet been made official. So Nagorno-Karabakh is a region that has been predominantly inhabited by ethnic Armenians. It's internationally recognized as being part of Azerbaijan. The collapse of the Soviet Union, there was an independence movement there. This led to a bloody war. There was a second war in 2020, in which Azerbaijan took back a lot of what was lost. So now today, last week, we saw violence again break out with Azerbaijani forces moving to retake the entire region. Uh, that's, I think, where we stand today. Right. And there is, of course, a complicating factor in all of this. So I'm going to ask the, the million dollar question, really. What's the role of Russia? So Russia's always played a role there. Historically, Russia has been more aligned with Armenia. They have security treaties with Armenia. But since I would say the revolution in 2018 in Armenia, which brought a more democratic government, we've seen Russia move away from Armenia. There's also, of course, the factor of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I think limits what they can do on the ground. So what we saw actually right now was, I think, Russia switching allegiance maybe from Armenia to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has a very autocratic government. Armenia, like I said, more democratic. So in many ways, it's maybe a better fit they also, since the second Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020, Russia has had peacekeepers on the ground. This was part of the ceasefire agreement, which was brokered by Russia also. These peacekeepers we saw did very little during last week's events. They essentially stood down and allowed what happened to happen. You, OC Media, were following very, very closely day by day as the situation unfolded. Perhaps you could just take me back to the launch of the attack last week and just bring me up to date, taking me through the key events and setting out the path to where we are today. Yeah, of course. So last week, Azerbaijani forces launched what appeared to be a very well-planned, coordinated attack. 
They claimed it was in response to several people dying in a landmine explosion, but it was quite clear that this had been planned for some time. The authorities in Nagorno-Karabakh, they appealed for help from the outside world, for someone to pressure Azerbaijan to stop. The local population in Nagorno-Karabakh, the defense forces they have, were extremely weakened following the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, so I think they couldn't put up much of a fight. They saw how it was going. Now this week we see that tens of thousands are leaving Nagorno-Karabakh. I think uh, the latest numbers as of this afternoon, this is Wednesday afternoon, it's 40,000 people have left out of a population of roughly 120,000. It looks to me that few, if any, people will stay under Azerbaijani rule. And just to be clear, this is an exodus into Armenia. Exactly. Yeah. So the region had been, prior to this attack, the region had been under blockade for nine months to various degrees. There was no fuel, there was no food, no medical supplies. So this was a people who had already been almost broken. And now the humanitarian situation on the ground, it's dire. So I think for a lot of people, they, they see no other option than to leave to Armenia. So we've got a situation where we have Nagorno-Karabakh just emptying of people. Is this the end of Nagorno-Karabakh? Is that what we're looking at? I think it is. I think there's very little chance these people will ever go home. Even if the Azerbaijani authorities were to allow them to, I, I don't see how they could bring themselves to go back to live under the current government in Baku, which... Let's make no mistake, anti-Armenian is a big part of the state narrative. So, yeah, it, it's hard to see how anyone would go back in this situation. Right. So in a world without Nagorno-Karabakh, a world in which Nagorno-Karabakh has been absorbed into Azerbaijan and its population been absorbed into Armenia, what does that mean? Can you follow the ripples out for me? I mean, that's the big question. I think one thing that it shows is that in the 21st century, might still makes right. This was a conflict that was resolved through the use of force alone, brute force. And the international community did little to nothing to prevent that. I think in terms of the region, one of the big questions is, will Azerbaijan stop there? Azerbaijani officials do make claims on Armenian land quite regularly, because before the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were many Armenians living in Azerbaijan and vice versa. And they all were either expelled or fled. So you see these officials making claims, especially on Armenia's southern Sunik province. Armenia is in a very weak position right now. Its security ally, Russia, has ignored its previous calls for aid. So I think the question for a lot of people is, is what happens next is this conflict over or will Azerbaijan push further and how would the world respond to that? I think the ramifications are something we're going to be finding out about in years and years to come. And covering as well. Would you like to put in a little plug for your upcoming podcast, Stropin? Yeah, so we're speaking to local people, our Armenia correspondent. We have a peace activist and political analyst from Azerbaijan and also... Uh, Lawrence Browers, he's a great expert on the conflict who's been working on it for decades. If 
anyone would like to hear more about this conflict, I, they're the people to listen to. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much, Robin. Thanks a lot. Robin Fabro is Editor-in-Chief of the OC Media Platform covering the North and South Caucasus region. Go to oc-media.org for all their Nagorno-Karabakh coverage, including two podcast episodes devoted to the topic. Three months after their bitter defeat in the Greek parliamentary elections, the leftist party Syriza has a new leader and a new direction. A Greek-American outsider whose eclectic CV includes a spell at Goldman Sachs Bank as well as time spent volunteering for Joe Biden in the US and as the founder of his own shipping company, the 35-year-old Stephanos Kasalakis surged to the helm of the party within 21 days in a campaign largely pinned on social media and his own personal appeal as a political unknown. Anthe Karasava reports from Athens on how Kasalakis' election heralds a shift, not just within the Greek left, but also within the country as a whole. He's filthy rich, a former banker with Goldman Sachs. He lives in Miami, is handsome, charming, and has the aura of a rock star, married and openly gay. Stefanos Kasselakis is sending shockwaves across Greece's political spectrum and beyond. The 35-year-old former banker threw his hat into the race for Syriza's leadership, posting a four-minute video across social media channels promising to build the Greek dream. He never really explained what that included, but he took the nation by storm, darting into the heartland of this largely conservative nation – pressing the flesh with leftist voters and posting endless clips on social media channels, winning Greeks over with his charm, charisma, openness and candor. Kasselakis beat Efi Aksioglu, a young, mild-mannered Labour lawyer who served as the youngest cabinet minister in the government of Syriza leader Alexis Tsipras at the height of Greece's debt crisis. She was seen as the favourite to succeed Tsipras after he led the party for 15 years. Either pick would have ushered a breath of fresh air into the stuffy reformist leftist party whose core values stem from the Greek Communist Party, the most hardline leftist movement still in Europe. But the Kasselakis' win is more telling. Politics aside, young voters I spoke to throughout his campaign suggested that his meteoric rise reflects changing attitudes and social norms within this largely xenophobic and homophobic society. Kasselakis relied on social media channels to boost his profile and until recently was a U.S. resident who counts English, German, French and Spanish among the languages he speaks fluently. Educated at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States, Kasselakis worked for Goldman Sachs, before founding his own shipping company. He has been outspoken about LGBTQ rights in Greece and is in a civil partnership with his American partner, Tyler Macbeth, making him Syriza's first openly gay leader. But whether members of Syriza's old guard will remain or defect to other parties remains unclear. Some are already refusing to work under the new leader, suggesting that Syriza may be facing a potential schism. 
The government of Kyriakos Mitsotakis is also concerned. The Prime Minister's popularity has suffered a huge blow after thousands of people were left homeless last month, their businesses and households destroyed amid catastrophic floods in which the state's response was either too late or non-existent. With Kasselakis on a popularity high and society here increasingly transforming to the beats of social trends, TikTok ads and videos, Mitsotakis faces his biggest challenge yet, provided the leftist newcomer keeps his party together and united. Antikarasava DW, Athens. Of all the adjectives used in that profile, lazy certainly wasn't one of them. And to be honest, I'm not even sure that lazy is the appropriate adjective to describe the competitors in Montenegro's laziest citizen competition either, particularly this year when the competition has turned into an epic. It's now well into its second month and the top contenders still haven't gotten out of bed yet. Guy Delaunay reports on a truly bizarre phenomenon that originated as a light-hearted effort, if you can call it an effort, to poke fun at regional stereotypes about Montenegrins being work-shy. There's nothing to do and all day to do it. That's how it is in Donja Brezna. This village in Montenegro really is in the middle of nowhere. And though the surrounding countryside is spectacular, there isn't much in the way of modern-day distractions. So it's quite possibly the perfect location for one of the world's more unusual events, the quest to find Montenegro's laziest citizen. They are actually uh, physically and mentally really strong people. Boris Krunic is one of the organisers of the competition at the ethno-village Montenegro, a collection of log cabins and stone huts nestling under the nearby mountains. They usually have a small, like, funny joke of us that uh, Montenegro people are lazy people. So we came on the idea to let's try uh, on that joke to make some competition that make laugh everyone and to show the people that actually maybe we are that. (laughs) The participants have now been hard at it for about a month and a half and the level of determination is impressive. There might be a grand prize of a thousand euros for the last person to raise themselves from a prone position, but competitor Lydia Markovic says this is about more than the money. My brother and parents came to beg me to stop, promising me 1,000 euros in exchange if I did. But I told them there was no chance and that I'd stay until the end. Montenegro's beaches attract visitors from around the world, and now so does its laziest citizen contest. In the current edition, competitors from Russia, Ukraine and Serbia have all been vying for the title. That is, if vying is the right word for relaxing on a mattress. 21 competitors started with the daydream of going home with the grand prize. Serbia's Jovan Srnčanin is one of four still standing, ah, lying, as the competition dawdles into its second month. I can assure you that it is very hard to stay lazy this much. I actually think that it's uh, more harder to work than to lay down in this state. What is it that that keeps some people lying down? And I think 17 people now have got up and, and presumably walked, danced or run away. 
none of us could even imagine that the competition would uh, last this long. The river carries you on, you know. <laughs> All of us uh, just want to prove to ourselves that we can do anything if we just want it. Not everyone is trying to portray a lying down competition as an endurance event. Fellow competitor Gordana Filipovic says it's much needed downtime from her usual family obligations. I'm proud of myself because I still manage to hold on. I'm also proud of my family who support me and my husband who's been with the kids for a month. He tells me, you're on vacation, stay in bed and enjoy it. The competitors while away the time watching sports streams or listening to music. But this year, a concession allowing bathroom breaks every eight hours has turned the competition into a marathon rather than a sprint. With bladder strength no longer the key criterion, the competition could continue for a very long time. I am almost sure that that we will not end until October, and um, I, I'm, I'm too scared to say some, something more than that. And if you're thinking of taking part next year, just remember, it takes a lot of effort to be this lazy. Guy Delaunay, DW, Ljubljana. We're going to be waking you up with a double shot of Italian coffee in a minute. Uh, so don't say you weren't warned. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. October 1st is International Coffee Day, and where better to celebrate it than in the home of the cappuccino, latte, macchiato, etc., etc. I am, of course, talking about Italy. And who better to mark the day for us than our very own queen of coffee, Danny Mitzman. When it comes to food and drink, there are many ways to wind up Italians, if you're feeling so inclined. Probably the easiest is to ask for pineapple on your pizza. Only the most professional waiting staff won't flinch. At home, simply serve them spaghetti on a plate instead of in a bowl. If you really want to cause outrage, try putting salad on the side of the same plate. But my favourite is the Italian attitude to coffee, or, more specifically, cappuccino, which for Italians is not a kind of coffee, it's cappuccino. If you say you fancy a coffee and then order a cappuccino, they'll think you've changed your mind. While un café can be long, short, decaf, macchiato, or even corretto with a dash of grappa or another liqueur, cappuccino is cappuccino. Most bars have only recently started to offer soya, rice or oat milk alternatives, but there's certainly no such thing as a skinny or a large. The only variation you'll get is a dusting of cocoa on top, by special request. 
But the thing that tickles me most about cappuccino is that, for Italians, it's strictly a breakfast drink. Order a cappuccino before midday and nobody will raise an eyebrow. But after lunch? Seriously? After dinner? Heaven forbid! And if you want to blend in with the locals, never ever order a cappuccino with your meal. Unless, of course, your meal is breakfast and features a croissant or a piece of cake. When my holidaying friend ordered a cappuccino with her pizza, I found myself mouthing a sympathetic sorry to the horrified waiter. The thing is, an espresso is a tiny shot, something Italians take rather than drink, a sort of ritualistic meal closure. Cappuccino with all that liquid, all that milk. It's just not good for the digestion. Buongiorno, Mimmo. Cappuccino me la fai? Guarda. The man you can hear in the background is my local barista, Mimmo. I've lived here for 20 years and the street wouldn't be the same without his bar. Mimmo's cappuccino is, without a doubt, the best in the neighbourhood. The freshly ground coffee is smooth, the froth is creamy, the temperature is perfect. And best of all, he's learned to indulge me in my favourite and most un-Italian transgression, the mid-afternoon cappuccino. Even now at 4pm. I'm such a rebel. Yeah, go and drink your 4pm cappuccino in Montenegro, Danny Mitzman. Then you'll be a rebel. Yes, coffee culture has made it into our question of the week. A slightly quirky question here for you. The first webcam was invented at Cambridge University. What was its purpose? Was it to let people know if the coffee pot was full or not? To find out who'd been stealing the coffee? Or to raise money for a new coffee machine? The poll is up on Spotify, so head on over to take part. Last week's question was about beer and the majority of you correctly guessed that Czechia or Czech Republic has the highest per capita beer consumption in Europe. Although if you went for Germany, uh, you were actually in good company. That was the answer that we were expecting to. Just before we go to break, I have an announcement and a request. The announcement first, we are delighted to be able to tell you that Inside Europe's Women of Europe special has made it through to the finals of the Signal Podcast Awards. It's down to public voting now, which is where the request comes in. We would massively appreciate it if you could take the time to vote for the Women of Europe special, which really meant a lot to us because it gave us a chance to showcase the bravery, solidarity and defiance 
defiance of women in Europe at a time when many of the rights that we took for granted are under attack. To vote, you can either go to vote.signalaward.com and search for Women of Europe, or you can follow the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for your support. This is Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. What we're seeing is a sort of culture war policies in areas of Europe where perhaps we hadn't seen them for a long time. I mean, I think it's probably most marketed in Central and Eastern Europe at the moment. In Hungary, we're seeing the largest bookstore chain and the largest publisher of um, literary fiction has just been taken over by a consortium or a sort of think tank with uh, ties to the Orban government. The Guardian's European culture editor, Philip Altman, there. More from him in a minute as we kick off a half hour of programming devoted to all things cultural, including Love and Loss, Remembrance Takes Centre Stage in Weimar, Farmers versus Eco-Activists, A Culture Clash in the French Countryside, and Having a Go, Participation Aplenty at the European Week of Sport. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Now, if you're a Europe-based user of the Guardian website or news app, then you've probably already noticed that something is different. Last week, the Guardian launched a new Europe edition to run alongside its UK, US, Australian and international editions. And as one of the Guardian's 25 million unique browsers per month, I can confirm that when I call up the Guardian these days, I get taken straight to a new landing page full of Europe focused coverage. Heading up the cultural side of the operation is a familiar name, Philip Altman, until recently the Guardian's Berlin bureau chief and someone that I have always associated more with meaty political coverage than with cultural content. But... Having had a think about it, I now realise that I was probably drawing a false dichotomy there and that, in fact, it's the intersection of the cultural and the political in Philip's work that's always interested me about him as a writer. Now, amidst The Guardian's launch excitement, Philip actually took the time to come up into our Berlin studios and share a childhood anecdote with us, which explains where it all began. 
I was born in Germany. I was born in Hamburg. And when I was 16, my dad got a job offer in London. And my parents said, we're going to move. <laughs> How about, you know, you just do a year abroad or something in England. And it was sort of around that time I was, you know, I was, I was quite angsty as teenagers tend to be at that age. And I remember watching in 1996 the European Championship final between England and Germany. And for the first time sort of seeing Germany with English eyes and realising that we weren't that likeable. <laughs> Perhaps Germany won on penalties and sort of there was a sort of strutting behaviour that they <laughs> that they displayed doing the penalties. You know, around that time, you know, there had been sort of six, seven years of great anxiety about German dominance in Europe. That was also translated into politics, of course, and especially Margaret Thatcher's sort of anxiety about German dominance embodied literally by Helmut Kohl, vast hulking frame. So I've always enjoyed the sort of crossover between politics and culture. You know, I've always enjoyed the stories most where the two overlap. And I think that's what I want to do as well in this new role to just not exclusively on Germany, of course, but across Europe to look at the areas where culture and politics overlap in interesting ways. And of course, you're taking over this brief at a time when culture is becoming increasingly polarised and indeed weaponized along ideological lines. I mean, just looking back at the stories that you've been covering recently, what kind of trends do you see there? I mean, we're obviously, what we're seeing is a sort of culture war policies in areas of Europe where perhaps we hadn't seen them for a long time. I mean, I think it's probably most marketed in Central and Eastern Europe at the moment. In Hungary, we're seeing the largest bookstore chain and the largest publisher of um, literary fiction has just been taken over by a consortium or a sort of think tank with uh, ties to the Orban government. And we're seeing similar sort of developments in Poland, where the new film by Agnieszka Holland about the border crisis between Belarus and Poland is just coming out a few weeks before Poland goes to vote in a national election, but also on a referendum on immigration. And the governing parties are agitating very forcefully against her. At the same time, I think I'm trying to be a little bit cautious around the idea of culture wars, because each country has its own relationship to culture wars. And it's not necessarily a case that every battle is being fought out in the same country, or that the dividing lines are always the same as they are in the UK or the US. Hmm. And of course, the instrumentalization of culture is nothing new, which is something that you're, of course, very conscious of. You're the author, your latest book is about a group of uh, Stasi poets. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's my sort of specialist area of interest of precisely that area where politics and culture overlap in interesting ways. It's a story that I started researching as a Guardian article and then realised this is about 10 years ago. I'm quite slow at writing books. And it's the story of how the Stasi started a poetry circle. The purpose exactly of this circle was initially a little bit unclear. Was it just a sort of way of keeping 
it's the people who worked for the Ministry of State Security keep them entertained? Or was it actually trying to shape art into a weapon, which was a sort of motto that was quite prominent in the Stasi. That's all I can say without spoiling my own book. <laughs> I'm halfway through the audiobook version, actually, so I'm glad you okay. didn't give any spoilers. <laughs> but I mean, that's fascinating that it, it sort of it all started off as an article that you sort of, uh, you know, filed away for future in-depth research. I mean, does that happen often that you get sort of stories that come across your desk that you think, oh, yeah, I, I'd really like to go deeper is that going to be an occupational hazard in this role do you think i mean yeah it's the occupational hazard it's also what makes it fun i mean sometimes you have a an inkling that there's a bit more here that if i wasn't a reporter who was constantly sort of throwing myself into stories at under on tight deadlines i also wouldn't find those interesting little anecdotes that or these little nuggets that you want to explore in a bit more detail so one of the things i've doing what I have done for our new Europe edition is a long read on Robert Habeck, Germany's Minister for Economic Affairs and Vice-Chancellor, whom I've sort of followed around for, for a year. It's obviously a sort of quite, to me, seemed like quite a fitting story for my special interest of politics and culture overlapping. Habeck used to be a translator of English poetry and writer of novels before he joined the Greens in his early 30s and and had quite a stellar rise through the ranks. But obviously, I don't think there are many cases of someone who really has a proper sort of literary and, you know, he studied philosophy, philosophical background as well. And that to me made him quite an interesting character to look at a bit more closely. Philip Alterman is Europe Culture Editor for The Guardian. The Robert Harbeck article that he mentioned there is out in The Guardian's long read format. You'll find it at theguardian.com forward slash Europe, alongside such Euro delights as a dedicated Europe live blog and European editions of various Guardian staples such as Today in Focus and Politics Weekly. For now, though, our own European cultural coverage continues as we turn to Existence, a bilingual play in both German and Arabic by the Syrian-German playwright Wihad Suleiman. The play is an exploration of loss, loss of loved ones, loss of possessions, dreams and freedom. It showed at this year's Kunstfest, an annual theatre, dance and music festival which takes place in Weimar, Germany. The theme of this year's festival, which closed earlier this month, was Remembrance Creates the Future. Megan Williams had centre seats. In a small, dark theatre, the psychic cost of war plays out on stage and through headphones each audience member puts on. As the stream of consciousness of two women and two men trapped in the jaws of violence, either as victims, a woman searching for a lost son or lover, or perpetrators, a soldier's anguishing monologue to the body of a person he's killed. All people who, with war, have had the normality of their everyday lives yanked out from under them. The play is called Existence, an astonishingly raw, poetic, and powerful work by young German-Syrian playwright Wihad Suleiman. That's in both Arabic and German. Yeah, first, 
I wanted to explore how war changes our lives, she says, how we're able to live with the constant possibility of dying a gruesome death. That the characters repeat the story to say we are here. The imagery is hauntingly precise. The eyeball of a boy, blown up, that lands on a wheat stalk where his mother finds it. Uh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. The question of how people exist among the horrors of war prompted Suleiman to begin writing Existence a decade ago. Then, in 2015, she was sponsored by the Goethe Institute to go to Germany. Before my plan to come to Germany, it was my question, not a story from people, but my question about the life, about the war. The artistic director of the Weimar Kunstfest, Rolf Hemke, came across a version of her play in English and had it translated into German. But he had trouble convincing the National Theatre to back it as part of the Weimar Festival. They read the text and they said, no, this is too weird for us. We can't relate to it. Eventually, though, he won people over. It took such a long time. This is one of the longest standing projects I have been working on. And somehow we all kept the face. It is really nice. The play is directed by Ludia Zimke, who's been collaborating with theatre makers in Arab-speaking countries since 2011. She says the hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees who arrived in Germany in 2015 and 16 spiked interest in theatre from the region. It intensified things very much. Um, the only good thing uh, in all this is that uh, people came um, and uh, more collaboration was possible. The challenge, she says, is making the audience see the characters not just as refugees, but as people, and sticking with plays from a different culture. feeling was that the public uh, got tired very quickly, also a painful aspect. We often invited Syrian public or Lebanese public, and it was too hard. The trauma still too fresh, she says. Another show at the Kunstfest involving an often misunderstood group is the dance performance Run Through by the Bonn-based Cocoon Dance Company. Choreographer Raffaele Giovanola takes a group of adults with intellectual disabilities through rehearsal. They move up and down, exchange eye contact, slide forward, backwards or sideways, their arms shooting suddenly out in expressive gestures. It's simple and oddly intimate and utterly mesmerizing. It is really the fact that for them, movement or the stage, the performance, is it's it's give them power and it also give them the chance to to be themselves. Giovanola, who was awarded the prestigious De Faust Prize in 2022, calls this rehearsal an exchange. It's one of a number of week-long sessions in which dancers in her company work with a group of people with a diverse movement background. The choreographer integrates these new perspectives on movement into a show with them, actors with Down syndrome. Serbian folk dancers or American female baseball players. It was really interesting. It was the work of the arms out to throw and out to catch. This latest group, adults with disabilities, has decided not to perform. They're too shy. But the dancers take the particular movements they picked up from the adults and add them to the performance. I feel that um, even if we don't take something when I can concretely say, okay, this was from this week, 
still uh, the fact that we spend those days with them is also changing something in the perception or in the imaginary of what we do. For me, all is easy. Also, ich Cool, I found it easy, cool, fun, says Florian, who lives in a town nearby where he works at a small pipe-making factory. The joy of dance, he says, and getting to know new people. After the week of rehearsal, eight performers with a live DJ put on the hour-long dance. Florian and the others from his group are in the audience. He's thrilled to see the moves they've memorized, performed on stage, and to know they contributed to the show. Megan Williams, DW, Weimar. Time now for us to leave the city of Goethe and Schiller and head on westwards, deep into rural France, where a clash of cultures is taking place. The French countryside, though largely spared the violence that hit urban areas in July, has become the theatre of increasingly violent attacks by environmental activists against farms and agricultural infrastructure. In one recent attack in the south of the country, militants destroyed several thousand young grafted apple trees after their owner, who had gone organic, switched back to conventional farming. This report from John Lawrenson, not far from the town of Levaux. Farm manager Michael Vieira snaps off an apple tree shoot. That's what they did, he says. 18,000 times. Outside this three-hectare plot, apples are ripening in the summer heat. But here, where six farm workers spent a good part of spring grafting young trees onto rootstock, their work was destroyed in one night by a group of what the French government now calls eco-terrorists. It makes me really angry. Of course it does. They call themselves environmentalists, but uprooting trees is against nature. Not to mention the cost, the lost production and the work, all that effort in the heat, the rain and the cold. 2023 has seen a sharp increase in what French environmentalists themselves call Operation Coup de Poing, punch operations. The biggest was at a place called Saint-Soline in the west of France, where thousands of activists trying to stop farmers building a reservoir fought a pitched battle with thousands of gendarmes. 250 people were injured, 50 seriously, five critically. The government banned a group called Earth Uprising after Saint-Soline, though that ban has now been suspended by the Constitutional Council. Among other recent incidents, militants entered greenhouses and destroyed Lily of the Valley, accused of using too much water and sand, and lettuces said to be experimental and chemical fertilizer dependent. Back in Lavore, Mayor Bernard Carayon says a mysterious group calling itself the Thistle that has claimed responsibility for the apple farm attack is typical of a new, very left-wing eco-extremism. In its communique, this group aligns itself with a radical environmentalism that is on the rise in France. It's a political movement that doesn't believe in representative democracy, democratic institutions or democratic debate. 
It treats its adversaries as enemies, because they have a different conception of progress, because they are in favor of economic growth, and believe that it's thanks to research and industry that we are going to meet the challenge of climate change. A donkey snorts in a field belonging to a smallholder, Jean-Luc Hervé, a member of the Peasants' Confederation, an environmentally radical farmers' union founded by the sheep breeder José Bové, who made a name for himself by dismantling, as he put it, a McDonald's and destroying fields of genetically modified maize. Monsieur Hervé says he understands the attack on the Lavore farm. This industrial structure has been committing environmental irregularities for years. Pesticide spraying in windy weather. Or when they lit fires to protect their trees from frost and it sent 20 people to hospital with smoke intoxication and now planting land with the promise that it would be organic and going back on that promise. Local people rightly fear that they're going to be using more chemicals that hurt the environment and public health. So this sort of reaction, though it might be regrettable, is to be expected. Back at the apple farm, manager Miquel Vieira speaks Spanish to some seasonal workers who are thinning out the fruit on some of the trees that did not provoke the ire of the eco-warriors. A recent poll shows 85% of French people oppose the sort of direct action increasingly adopted by environmentalists in France, but the eco-radical minority is an active one. Following the ill-fated banning of the Earth Uprising Collective, 180 groups were formed around the country in support of the organisation. This war in the French countryside has perhaps only just begun. John Lawrence and DW, Lavaux, France. We have energetic reporting from the European Week of Sports coming up next, so do stay tuned. In the meantime, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, and you are listening to Inside Europe. Time to grab your gym bag now and do some stretches because things are about to get sporty. The European Week of Sport has been going strong since it was launched by the European Commission back in 2015, part of a bid to encourage Europeans to get fit and take part in sports. Since Spain currently holds the rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union, it got to launch the event this year, which it did in Valencia with an activity day called hashtag Be Active. This sounded like a brief for the fittest of our correspondents, and I'm just speculating there, Ashish Sharma. As I arrived at Valencia City of Science and Arts, a huge cultural complex with museums and open spaces, I was greeted by the rhythmic sounds of dance aerobics. On a stage were two instructors, leading over a hundred people in a vigorous dance routine. 
mums, dads, children, even grandparents, copying their instructors with varying degrees of success and flexibility. But this doesn't matter. The whole ethos of the European Week of Sport is about getting people into action. I'm Georg Heisler and I'm the director of the European Commission responsible for culture and sport. The basic thought behind this is there's nearly half of European population never does any sport at all. In some member states the figures are even worse. And this is not only a problem for kids, it's a problem for middle ages and old people. And the idea is really to bring them out of their armchairs into sports. The good thing here is that with relatively little money you're doing a lot. I've been visiting a project of basketball inclusion. We pay 60,000 euros over three years and with this 60,000 euros tens of young people are getting together, create a little community, uh, include minorities. So with very little money you can make enormous achievements. Is this a growing problem? This is exactly the problem. It's, it's a problem of health and health is cost, the, the whole health system. And we have identified sport and by the way also culture of being a remedy to this uh, problem and we're really working hard to improve the situation. As the DJ explained exercise activities for people to follow, I took a wander around to see which sports had turned up to exhibit their credentials to the throngs of people that were now pouring into the venue. Well, I've just made my way across to look at some different sports and one very interesting one is fencing. It's also very popular. There's a lot of people here who are waiting to, uh, to participate. And I've got one person with me who's been doing some fencing, Marianne. Hi. Hi. How did you get involved in this sport? Um, it was actually purely by accident because um, <laughs> I saw an advert on the internet when I moved here to Spain. Um, and I saw there was a free lesson and I tried it out one day and I just loved it from the first day. And you're here at this wonderful Be Active Day event. What are you hoping to achieve being here today? I hope people see a bit more of fencing because for me I had to discover it almost but I hope we are here to show a bit more. There's so many children that I was looking at. Yes, who are, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what kind of reaction have you had? It's so interesting how to, to see how like the culture interacts also with the sport because it's like you've seen it on movies probably or you've seen it somewhere like that and you're like, oh, I feel like I'm in a film. They're just here to play and they're like, oh, I'm holding the sword for the first time. This is so cool. As the Zumba class began to warm up with more members of the public joining in, I made my way through the crowds going past a paddle court, a mini hockey pitch, a judo demonstration class and a team of synchronised swimmers teaching people how to stretch and warm up and made my way to a sport I'd never heard of before. My name is Beatrice Soliva and I'm the person in charge of the Plugging Tour Spain. A Plugging Tour, I mean, that, that sounds... Wonderful. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, plugging is a mix of two words, jogging, and to plug up in Swedish is uh, pick up. So it started in, uh, in Swedish uh, in 2017, and they started running away in the, uh, in the routine of exercises, and they started taking uh, the rubbish that they found on the floor. Ah, so as they're running around, they pick up litter. Yeah, so this started to expand all around uh, Scandinavian, and then Europe, and now it's all around the world. Now 125 countries practice plugging. There is no winner, 
is uh, we win, all of us, and the planet wins as well. How much rubbish have you managed to pick up? Where did you go? At the moment, I don't know. We have to count because there is uh, uh, all the... Hundreds of bags there, I can yes, see. Yes, but there are also some more bags um, somewhere farther. They couldn't bring it to here because it was a lot. But I think this is an action which uh, it shouldn't be necessary, but it is. Even though the activities on the main stage have now finished, the events are still carrying on and there are still hundreds of people milling around getting involved. And the hope for the European Commission and its member nations is that events like this will make their populations healthier for the future. Ashish Sharma, DW, Valencia. Ashish Sharma, what a sport. That is it for today. But just a quick reminder before we go, if you want to do us a favour this week, then we would massively appreciate it if you could take the time to vote for our Women of Europe special in the Signal Podcast Awards. It was a programme that meant a lot to us and gave us the chance to showcase some amazing women from around the continent. Also up for an award are our colleagues from the Cannabis Cowboys podcast. Here's a reminder of what they sound like. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20K. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money, green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks, the Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. The Cannabis Cowboys, by the way, are nominated in a different category to Inside Europe in the Signal Podcast Awards. So you can, in fact, vote for us both. We'll be putting the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Thomas Schmidt and Gianluca Wald. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. Germany.